1: Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. On this edition, we'll feature nanotechnology hypotheticals and orgasms. But first up, here's the news with Ollie Brand and Mark West. <music>
0: Scientists at the Ag Research Center in New Zealand have produced genetic information that could reduce Start again. Scientists at the Ag Research Center in New Zealand have produced genetic information that could help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by livestock. The researchers have sequenced the genome of a microorganism called M. ruminantium which is widely found in the digestive systems of agricultural ruminant animals like cows and sheep, and is one of the major methane-producing organisms in these animals. Methane has a global warming effect that is 21 times greater than carbon dioxide, and we've heard lots in recent years about the impact of greenhouse gas emissions from burping and farting livestock. This has also been a cause of great concern to Australian farmers, as to what the cost on them will be with their inclusion in the government's proposed emissions trading scheme. This new research is part of a wider program by an industry-government partnership called the Pastoral Greenhouse Gas Research Consortium. The findings have been welcomed as there is still a great need for technologies that mitigate methane emissions from ruminant livestock. The genomic data is expected to lead to the development of vaccines to reduce the amount of methane that livestock produce. This next one comes courtesy of BBC News Online. G-spot doesn't appear to exist, according to researchers. The elusive erogenous zone said to exist in some women may be a myth, say researchers who have hunted for it. Their study in the Journal of Sexual Medicine is the biggest yet, involving 1,800 women who are all pairs of identical and non-identical twins, and they have found no proof. The King's College London team believe the G-spot may be a figment of women's imagination, encouraged by magazines and sex therapists. But sexologist Beverly Whipple, who helped popularise the G-spot idea, said the work was flawed. She said the researchers have discounted the experiences of lesbian or bisexual women and failed to consider the effects of having different sexual partners with different lovemaking techniques. Co-author of the study, Professor Tim Spector, said... Women may argue that having a G-spot is due to diet or exercise, but in fact it is virtually impossible to find real traits. He went on to say, This is by far the biggest study ever carried out, and shows fairly conclusively that the idea of a G-spot is subjective. Colleague Angela Burry was concerned that women who feared they lacked a G-spot might feel inadequate which she says is unnecessary. She said, It is rather irresponsible to claim the existence of an entity that has never been proven and pressurise women and men to. Dr. Petra Boynton, a sexual psychologist at the University College London, said, It's fine to go looking for the G-spot, but don't worry if you don't find it. So, to quote Carl Sagan, The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So I suppose what we can take from this is to continue the search for the mysterious G-spot. It's very interesting because a couple of years ago, I understand that the
3: debate was settled the other way, that the G-spot did exist and some scientists found areas uh, of thicker tissue which were supposed to be the G-spot and this was conclusive proof and now it's all changed again. Well, that's interesting. The thing,
1: I saw that too. I found there's a February 2008 issue of New Scientist has a story saying "ultrasound nails location of elusive G-spot," and they've got pictures of the G-spot <laughs> in women who have them, and pictures of women who don't have them, indicating uh, it seemed pretty clear that it existed because you could see it.
0: Yeah, um, was this this was the Italian research group, I believe?
3: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Professor Emmanuel Janini.
0: Yeah, that's right. I wonder if it's uh if it's a uh, possibly a a comment on um the the different research techniques in in this field by, you know, people from different parts of Europe. Maybe
3: I'd like to hear, hear you explore this idea some more.
0: Oh well, <laughs> well maybe um well I I don't know. I'm just uh just um sort of hypothesizing here, but maybe well, the British have something to learn from their um their Mediterranean continental colleagues. cousins yeah perhaps. funny you
1: should say that. Um, there's a report here in The Washington Post and the Washington Post basically has that British researchers you know deciding that the g-spot was fictitious or, or subjective. whereas a thousand French gynecologists at a conference on the G-spot, so it's a special conference just about g-spots decided that the English need to keep looking.
3: Was the uh, location of the conference made a
0: secret? (laughs) (laughs) And only those in the know could actually locate it. That's right.
1: (laughs) So what they end up concluding in the Washington Post is that not only was there lots of backlash from European continental sexologists on this British absence of a G-spot, but the farther south in Europe, the more surprised and anti they were. And they also got lots of emails from men claiming that they were very skilled and that they could easily find a G-spot in any woman.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I don't understand why there's a debate, really. Why isn't it cut and dry? Well, Mm.
1: according to the New Scientist Ultrasounds, it was because not every woman has a G-spot. So because it's not in every woman, therefore you could look at a whole bunch of women who didn't have it and say it's not there, or a whole bunch of women who did have it and say, look, everyone's got one. It's only when you have a big enough sample size and you know where to look with the right instruments that you can say, ah, these women have it and these women don't.
0: Oh, and just like a little side note, getting getting to uh, speaking with like the sexual conferences, I believe that I can't quote my exact source here, but I believe the shortest speech in history was by a keynote speaker at a sexual conference one time who got up and said, it gives me great pleasure and sat down. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I like it And of course, a G-spot's not all you need for an orgasm if you're a woman in China
3: Well, this is the case I have a, an interesting uh, study here that's published in Evolution and Human Behaviour in 2009 And the, the title of the report is Partner Wealth Predicts Self-Reported Orgasm Frequency in a Sample of Chinese Women And what the authors set out to do, Thomas Pollitt and Daniel Nettle they set out to find a correlation between the frequency of orgasm in a sample of Chinese women and the uh, the fitness of their partners. And the way that they were measuring evolutionary fitness was by their earning potential, or rather, how much money they earned. And uh, they were also looking for a correlation between uh, orgasm frequency and the height of the partner because height is another accepted, uh, it seems to be accepted in the field, uh, sign of male fitness. And what they found is, uh, they found a very strong correlation between partner wealth and frequency of orgasm. And they pulled out all the other possible confounds, such as the woman's age, health, happiness, educational attainment, relationship duration, wealth difference between the partners, difference between the partners in educational attainment, and regional location. And so they found that uh, that this partner wealth was a really strong determinant on whether uh, the woman had an orgasm during sex. And well, what do you guys think of this? They have a few interesting theories, but I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of this before I tell you what they think.
0: Well, uh, that hype thing is rather interesting. Uh, like, I'm just, um, my mind leaps to all sorts of, like, anecdotal things that, that we hear about, about, you know, someone's ability to satisfy their lover, that, um, I mean, this is... This is Probably pretty baseless, but uh, like I've heard that you know, people that aren't particularly attractive are supposedly better in bed because they've got something to compensate for. Interesting, (laughs) whereas you know, whereas like people who are supposedly more attractive get it so often that they don't appreciate it in a way. But, uh, But again, I you know, I can't really put any scientific back into that.
1: I'm interested in the whole effect of the wealth. I keep thinking of these women looking up on their mobile phones their partner's bank accounts, uh, or, or watching the stock go up and down. It's like, oh yes, yes, no, <laughs> oh yes, yes, look, uh, and the credit rating and, and that sort of stuff. And <laughs> how real the information is that they're they're using that <laughs> to, to be yeah. stimulated. I don't know, especially
0: especially in um, in Vietnam. You know, sort of sticking with sort of the Southeast Asian theme there, where the currency is the dong. <laughs> you could you know, the mind boggles at the possibilities there, you know, you're like your wife has just seen the dong rise sharply and she's like, bed now.
1: Also China, you know, used to be a communist country. It's kinda of interesting that it's so culturally embedded or perhaps even more deeply than culture. I don't know whether this is supposed to be culture or whether this is... Um, not intended. Evolutionary. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what about when they've all got the same income?
3: That's very interesting. I mean, one of the interesting things in, in any of these sorts of reports that I that stand out to me is the uh, self-reported is in the, is in the title.
0: So can you trust the results? It's, it's interesting. So basically they went out and they surveyed all of these women and said, how much does your husband make? we yeah. you, you Do know you have all how satisfied <laughs> are you in bed oh yeah here oh, he and millions and oh, every night whew, you know? <laughs> yeah it's yeah i wonder i wonder what sort of um, uh, the methodology scrutiny they they had
3: well it, it's very hard to identify you know the third variable that might be driving it all perhaps but the the, the, the some of the interesting conclusions that perhaps uh, come out of this, because I don't think it's very settled on the role of the female orgasm in evolution. Why? Why does it exist? Uh, is it is it there for the same reason men have nipples? Like it's kind of just a, a byproduct,
0: <laughs> like a vestigial, yeah. of so thing.
3: Or does it have its own uh, evolutionary role? And there, one of the theories that the the authors uh, put forward is that uh, it helps bond bond the partners, and in a way, it's selective for the men who have the higher earning potential.
1: Mm. Well, orgasms do release oxytocin in the brain, and oxytocin is the bonding chemical. So it makes sense. It seems to have a definite um, evolutionary advantage that it's not just um, a bit of fun for women um, or something Mm. that men need that women get by accident. Yeah. And, of course, there's those studies they did ages ago where they showed that... uh, Orgasm seems to move the ovaries closer to the sperm it dips them in, mm. so there seems to be physiological things for conception in women's orgasms.
3: Well, that's that's right. That's another uh, physiological theory that it actually promotes prom- uh, reproduction with the fitter male. I mean, th- there's there's possibly the other option that uh, the men that earn more money are better in bed, perhaps.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that somehow a, there's like a genetic basis, you know, linking success in Business or yeah, success, success in enterprise, maybe they're do. more confident. Yeah, something like that. Hmm. Interesting ideas. You can bet any amount that at the end of that research paper they say there is there is still a lot we need to to research. You know, there's. Th- <laughs> I could probably read you the last bit. Let's yeah. see. <laughs> yes, here we go. Further research, reaches,
3: further research is needed to elucidate. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: but that's pretty much mandatory in every. Every a article,
3: and again, in addition, a more thorough investigation. Well, wow. <laughs> so
0: yeah, there's quite a bit, okay. quite a bit
3: left to be studied. <laughs>
1: You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2 sercom Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com.
2: Nano things are way too small for you or I to see. But soon the world will change because of nanotechnology. A million nanometers that are lined up in a row Are just about as long as a single flake of snow Even germs are several thousand nanometers tall So when you hear that something's nano, it's very, very small Uh, I think that is very interesting I think that's very lame Poker Monster! See, big plastic tubes do not exactly have a great appeal. But nanotubes are stronger than the strongest piece of steel, and they're lighter than most metals which makes them so ideal. And maybe later a space elevator may truly become real. Ooh, stop oh, this. a space elevator! <laughs> nano, 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 what a wonderful surprise! that! of sand do nothing when they're sitting on the shore, but nano sand glows brightly like no light has done before. They shine all sorts of colors, from red to green to blue, and they use much less energy than current light bulbs do. Which is good for the environment, right? That's right! Nano, 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 what a wonderful surprise!
1: Earlier this week, I went to a nanotechnology hypothetical run by James O'Loughlin from the New Inventors on ABC. So there's a nanotech forum on at the Darling Harbour Sydney Convention Centre. They had quite a few people up on the stage. They had people who were consumer advocates, people representing the regulators, a nanotech scientist, and a venture capitalist, a lawyer and a panel of just ordinary folk off the streets. And when James L. went to talk to the just ordinary folk and asked them who they were, and he asked a few, you know, sort of joking questions about whether they'd ever slept with an nanotechnologist, whether they'd ever been abducted by a UFO, which got a very strong response. In fact, she hadn't been abducted, but she had seen a flying saucer. He then asked a quick question of the ordinary people. How many of you believe in flying saucers, and they all put up their hands. And so he said, maybe we need to look at our recruitment next time. (laughs) So it was good fun. The nanotechnologist was Matt Tran, and he's looking at early diagnosis of cancer because that's what saves the most lives. Because if you get it early, you can treat it. Basically, he's saying one half of all men will be diagnosed with cancer at some point in their lives, one third of women. It's that common. And if you get them early, 90% of them survive. If you don't, 90% of them die. It's pretty stark. So what he's looking for, he's aiming to build a miniature, cheap and easy to use device. The model he's got is, of course, the pregnancy test. You can buy a pregnancy test over the counter. You can do it yourself with any specialist advice and you can get an answer privately. So that's what he's working on. But the hypothetical that James O'Loughlin went with was a little bit further out than that. He was looking at a nanotech pill that you swallow that searches out cancer in your body. And if you've got an early stage cancer, perhaps ovarian breast or, or something else, your urine would turn purple the next morning. So he was asking questions about the safety And they brought up things like uh, the toxicological profile, how poisonous is it? What's going to happen when this purple urine gets into the environment, when it's flushed down the sewers? Are we going to have purple rivers? Does it break down? And what about the public funding? It's a university that's doing the research. What happens when a private company starts getting involved because they need private intellectual property to make money? Um, Does the public get anything back? Clinical trials and... The issues of that of being in the body seem to be the ones that stuck. So there's a claim that you can't can't possibly commercially develop something if it's public intellectual property. So if a government body has done it, it, has to be secret intellectual property, which is the opposite of what happens in the U.S., where every government-funded project, the information is publicly available. They went on to say that well, the alternative to that is instead of going to the big corporations, you could go to the Clinton or the Gates foundations, which are at the moment the biggest medical non-profits in the world. They do an awful lot of uh, vaccine and diagnostic test funding because a lot of that isn't that commercial. Well, at least it's not profitable. So there's a question over the priority. Can you trust the corporation's priority to make money, to market things or their other drugs? And an internal test, an in-body test, was a big issue because... You've got a lot more safety issues when you put something inside you. Is it going to come out again? What else is it going to do than if you're just doing a blood sample or a urine sample? There was the issue of the early diagnosis. If you do an early diagnosis for cancer that's earlier than normal, can you even treat, or even if it's not cancer, some other illness, can you treat it at that early stage? Therefore, Does the information actually help you as a consumer? You find out you've got something and the doctors don't know how to treat it. Good. Now you can worry about it until it gets bad enough that they can treat it, except you can't develop early intervention treatments unless you can diagnose things early. So it's a bit of chicken and egg. I think you have to allow for the early diagnosis, the tests, to pick it up early in order to let the doctors work out how to best treat it earlier. Like they have to know. So it's one of those issues. And then they started worrying about, well, okay, you're a consumer and you do the test. Well, what if you're a hypochondriac? When do you know that it's time to go and buy the test? Do you, are you feeling sick? Or are you just generally worried you might get cancer? As the doctor said something, should it be maybe be prescription rather than just over the counter? Like, if you do a pregnancy test, it's because you think you might have got pregnant, but a cancer test? How do you know? And then, do you do one next week as well for a cancer test? Because you didn't have it this week, but maybe you got it next week. When do you stop? And of course, what do you do if you can't get to the doctor and it does come out purple? What if you have to wait two hours? Are you going to panic? Are you going to get absolutely suicidal? I've got cancer! If you can't get to the doctor for two hours because there's a queue at the GP. Uh, or if you need to get into a specialist, it could be three months. Then they were looking at what sort of nanotechnology is already on the market. And the example given was sunscreen. Sunscreens traditionally zinc oxide and titanium oxide, which is what makes them white. And the nanoparticle form of them is also zinc oxide and titanium oxide, but nanoscale, and the difference is that's clear. So that stops the UV, but it allows visible light through so you don't have white all over you. So there seem to be no ill effects from sunscreens, so maybe the other ones aren't so bad. He put forward the hypothetical situation that a Swiss company was working on similar things and they're using genes, some sort of genetic test for cancer. And there's all the things. Who owns the genes? And there's international laws on patenting of genes. Is that a bad thing? Because after all, it's our common inheritance. We all have the genes. How can a company own them? And the entrepreneur was telling us, well, the good thing is that uh, patents expire and then everyone can use information, perhaps unlike copyright. And the lawyer pointed out, what the corporations fight tooth and nail to keep the patents alive, even if they have to put out new products substantially similar to the old products. And... In the end, the in-body stuff was just a bit too much, and they had to drop that and go for the the urine test or the blood test. And the basic basic rule that the nanotechnologists came up with was that um, you know you do you try your stuff out, you try you try it out, or you do your animal trials, and if it's toxic, dump it, which sounded a bit unfortunate for those worried about toxic dumping, but <laughs> so there's. Ideas about therapeutic drugs delivered by bucky balls and bucky tubes, which are little nano size sort of hollow structures that could have drugs inside. Possibly these things might go inside you rather than some sort of nanotechnological device or uh, nanoparticles themselves that are active. And there's questions about whether the nano versions of things are more active or differently active than the original large scale molecules. And we didn't really come to any great conclusion except that this particular product would not go to market. James O'Loughlin was fun, the panel were pretty good, and there's a nanotechnology conference all week at Darling Harbour. So guys, are you going to take the pill and find out if you got cancer in the morning?
3: You know, if it were something else, you know, if I had a test for influenza or something and I could, you could detect that really coming on early, then maybe...
1: So what would you do if you detected you had influenza coming on early?
3: I guess then I'd go to the doctor and have the jab. <laughs> but you can have that for free anyway. Maybe that's a bad example. But well, so uh, you have
1: the jab. What jab would you have if you got the flu? What jab would you have?
3: The flu, anti antiviral flu. The anti-thing. The, the flu jab. Whatever you call that. There
1: isn't... The, a, I have a flu there's jab. There's a vaccine.
0: The vaccine, you're you right. It's too
1: late to have the vaccine if you have got the flu. Well, but that's then there's true. the
0: antivirals. Then you've got... Um, well, you think if like the private companies, like you know CSL and those guys are manufacturing this stuff. I mean, like, you'd want to be pumping out as much as you can and uh, flooding the market with it to um, increase your market share and cash in on...
1: Actually, it sounds like I reckon you've you've hit something there, Mark. I reckon a home flu test that was quick, if you could buy Relenza or Tamiflu, the anti-flu drugs you were trying to think of, if you could get them on the market, like, over-the-counter or something, if you could test yourself and then take it, you would save all the doctor surgeries getting clogged up if there was a pandemic... And it would mean the doctor surgeries weren't automatically a dangerous place to go. <laughs> yep, and you've got true, a chance of getting the stuff. Mm. So they should sell it maybe as a thing. You get the kit with the, f- with the flu detection, and it's got the Tamiflu if you need to take it. If you can
3: prove to the... Well, maybe if you can prove to the chemist that, that it actually turned purple.
1: Oh, that's possible too. You bring yeah. back in the, with Perhaps, the kit with, the, like with that. the evidence. And, yeah, yeah. There you go. I think, guys, we've got a better product than they were yeah. providing at the hypothetical. <laughs> and that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, genetic tests, or if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice, communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Ollie Barand and Mark West. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.